Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. 20th Century Studios presents Vacation Friends 2, now streaming only on Hulu. Look at us all together again. We just wanted to give you guys a real honeymoon. Shut now streaming. Dad! He was just released from jail. Where can I get a drink around here? Back on vacation. This place is nice. It's drug lord nice. I'm sorry, drug lord nice? With more baggage. Ever since he showed up, he turned this relaxing vacation into total chaos. Who does that? Vacation Friends 2. Rated R. Now streaming. Only on Hulu. Welcome to Wagon Wheel, another episode. Thank you to everyone joining in live on Spotify Greenroom. Um, but if you're looking at this on YouTube, um, hi. If you're listening to this on Red Inca, hi again, I suppose. This episode is brought to you by Manscaped. Manscaped have designed the Lawnmower 4.0, which can and will groom your testicles better than you currently groom them. I'm pretty sure of that because uh, it certainly is the case for me. Uh, big fan of Manscaped. So you can go to manscaped.com and get a 20% discount on any of their products and free worldwide shipping by putting in Red Inca. That's all one word, Red Inca. So thanks to Manscaped for that. And they've been a pleasure to deal with so far as far as these sorts of things go. <laughs> thanks for everyone for coming in to the live chat as usual. And thank you to everyone who has sent in questions. So the Patreon subscribers, uh, they have sent some questions. Uh, if you want to support the podcast, the best way to do it is to get on Patreon. You can just give us a couple of dollars a month if that, that's all you want. Or for $5 a month, you get access to my emailer and you get access to the ability to ask questions on this. For 10 quid a month, you can have a chat with me once a month. There's all sorts of things on the Patreon. So it's worth going over there and um, having a look around and seeing how that goes. Okay, so we've just got a few questions coming in from the Patreon. So let's see who we have first. Kumar says, I hope to hear the funny Manscaped ads. Yeah, but there will be an ad later, but I've, I just read it out to start with Kumar. Um, <laughs> I have a question on women's cricket. How do women's bowlers get such wonderful swing? both in and out when bowling, is it because they bowl a bit slower? Uh, is it because they grip the ball differently? They have smaller hands, so they do grip the ball differently. Um, as far as um, pace, they certainly bowl slower. I don't think anyone, uh, I mean, that's quite obvious. I, was, I think that women seem to be in-swing dependent more than men who seem to be out-swing dependent. And I wonder if there is a biomechanical reason for this, something to do with the waist and the hips, Perhaps even the breasts. I don't know if that that is a part of it. Um, there's 
uh, it's funny. I, I was talking to someone who works with women's cricket recently, and and I was saying that um, there's no um, science on this so far. So the only really good biomechanical test they've ever done on women bowling was a comparison with men, which doesn't really help. That's not really what we need to learn. What we really need to learn is why women bowl the way they do, if it's the correct way, all those sorts of things. So I believe the ECB, I think it's the ECB, um, are currently doing their own testing, um, uh, I assuming through South, um, I was going to say Southampton, whatever that, Loughborough, probably through Loughborough um, or somewhere, somewhere like that. Um, so they're having a look at it all. But, yeah, it's, it, the whole thing's really interesting because we don't know that much about um, – we don't know that much about women's bowling. So I'm more interested in the fact that they swing it in than anything else at the moment. Uh, Will says, given how unhappy, uh, given how unhappy an England career Graham Hick ended up having, uh, would Hick have been happier and more celebrated if he stayed in Zimbabwe and been a flower-esque great for them? Yeah, um, it's, it's really quite interesting. So much of his legend is built on the fact that he basically had to break out of Zimbabwe. Um you know, to get to international cricket. I, I mean, I don't know how to answer that, Will, because we really don't know what would have happened for Graham Hick in that particular situation. I think that I think that what, what you're saying makes sense, but it's a completely different career path, isn't it? So he's not going around the world making runs everywhere. He's just making runs for Zimbabwe and then he pops up. Does he develop as well as a cricketer? Uh, you know, I, are there other pressures um, that, that he has to overcome? I think if he played in the 90s in Zimbabwe, it would have been a really interesting thing. I mean, having him and Andy Flower on the one side certainly would have made opposition teams um, think differently. I think he probably averages higher too um, than what he ends up uh, with. He probably, you know, there's that, I was using him as an example. In fact, I've been using him as an example a couple of times recently, but he was dropped after four tests, I think. I think that's right. And um that's not going to happen in Zimbabwe, is it? So his confidence is going to be completely different. He's going to be treated differently. Um, the pressure is going to be different, but there's still going to be a lot of pressure there. But there's a difference between having pressure with a new team and having pressure with an existing team who think you're about to save them. Um, but, yeah, it, it's a really, really interesting uh, thought experiment. I suppose that's almost one for Graham Hick. Um, I don't think he regrets what he does. Um, and also, when, when he made his decision, that you know, Zimbabwe wasn't about to become a test-playing nation. You know, if it wasn't for that weird day in Albury, um, they probably would have had to wait a little bit longer. I don't think there was a huge pressure pressure for that. I mean, they beat Australia in 83, and no one was saying at that stage that they should play uh, test cricket after that. If you want to know more about Zimbabwe cricket, though, um, Double Century podcast has just come out, the last one of season three, and it's all about Zimbabwe beating England in Albury in that uh, one day, a World Cup uh, game from 1992. Oh, Will's asked another one. You rightly said that Owen Morgan is an IPL great. Is that because of the quality of the competition or Morgan's name not being best suited to Indian pitches? Do you know what? I think I actually looked at um, – uh, I'm pretty sure that I actually looked at um, Owen Morgan's record in India for internationals, and I don't think it was that bad. Um, I, I think I did for this piece because I thought that might that might have been it. Maybe he just wasn't very good in India. Also, the tournament's been in other places as well. I think he certainly played in Kolkata where the pitches were ragging sideways. His record against spin, is again, wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, though, uh, when I looked it up. Uh, the competition is different than international cricket. And also, he's not playing, you know, in English pitch pitches, which is, you know, he's an Irish boy. He grew up on green tops, uh, moved to England and played on very flat 
you know, Western Wicket's uh, Dulwich College and then Middlesex um, and then ends up in, in uh, on a ragging uh, one in Kolkata. But he also failed almost at every other team he played for as well. I, I don't have a really good answer for why Owen Morgan hasn't done well, um, but he hasn't consistently made runs in the IPL. And I think he's played 76 games. You'd have to say that that's a very, very fair sample size at a certain point over 10 years in many different conditions for many different teams. And he just hasn't worked for him. But I don't have a great answer for you on Owen Morgan's, uh, sadly. Uh, Ian says, <coughs> sorry, everyone. Ian says, uh, from your involvement with sides, when you get an absolute howler of a result, um, uh, Punjab <laughs> contriving to lose to Rajasthan last week, we're needing no- nothing after the last few overs. Are you best to go into it in some depth to analyse what went wrong or just almost ignore it as you would boss the first 37 overs of the game? Well, <clears throat> I have a really good story about this, actually, Ian. Um, we um, at St. Lucia, so I don't know what this was, maybe the fifth game of my professional career being an analyst, uh, certainly with a team. I'd done some consultancy before that, but never with a team. We lost a game where I can't remember what the run chase was, but Trinidad needed or Trimbago needed 15 runs and over for eight overs or nine overs. Uh, there were signs coming in that things weren't going well. Uh, we made a couple of tactical errors and uh, I kept, everyone else in the team was quite confident and I kept saying, I think they can chase this. And everyone looked at me like I was crazy. Uh, I didn't expect Darren Bravo of all T20 players to come out and play probably still one of the greatest T20 innings of all time. He's hitting, uh, I think it might've been, if I'm not mistaken, it might've been my father's first ever T20 game. Uh, and he and he's always talked T20 down, and he just couldn't laugh at the game. He could not stop talking about it. So we lost that game, and there's plenty of an analysis that I could have done. I think we were in front of the game for I don't know the first 32 overs in this case, but way way in front of the game. We, we scored 215, 212, um, uh, smashed smashed the good bowls around everywhere, and as I said, we had them. Uh, when we were bowling and then it all fell apart. And so well, I <laughs> I did something that's probably a bit random and I don't know if we'd go down with all good all coaches, but <clears throat> I sent um, Brad Hodge almost a letter. Uh, he was our coach at that time. And I said to him, "You can't. I can't analyze this game. This is why I can say that that is one of the weirdest games that anyone's ever been involved with. Everything seems to be going against us in this tournament. We should have won this. I think that would have been our first win of the tournament. And I basically wrote like a, I don't know, uh, like a self-help um, letter or a, a an, yeah, motivational letter about, you know, what we had been through as a team and what a lot of us have been through as individuals to get to this moment. And to be fair to Hodgie, he took it and he basically read my letter out with his own improvements and changes live to the players. So instead of worrying about analysis, we went the complete other way and, and we had a back-to-back game. So we had lost one of the most embarrassing losses in T20 history. And within 24 hours, we had to play again. And I remember him reading out this letter and, and as I said, adding some of his own stories and his own thought processes to it. And I just felt the room change. And everyone was just like, yeah. Like when I, I think a lot of it was just me noting all the things that had gone wrong for us, um, you know, from the ownership structure to the planning of the tournament to uh, the, ske- the scheduling of the games were insane for us. And everything had come out and we'd lost this game and and Brad did this this big, great speech and he nailed it. And I just felt the room just get really excited and just it just felt energised. And we went out and won, won the next game. 
it was an absolute incredible uh, feeling. So I think that you probably only get to do that once or twice a year. But I think sometimes, with I, I remember with Melbourne Stars as well, we lost a game and they were desperate for me to do analysis. And I said, this is a throwout game. You don't worry about this game. I can analyze it and we can go and we can end up being really deep in it. But this is a throwaway game. There are some times that you just have to be honest and go, this game went a little bit wrong. You know, Aiden Markram and um, Nicholas Puran faced those same, what was it, 15 balls again. Uh, they're not going to lose that game nine times out of 10. That, you know, uh, it just sometimes things happened. I mean, Chris Morris bowled two of the worst full tosses to both of them, and one of them ducked them, and the other one um, got so scared by it, all he could get is a single. Um, that alone, in a normal case, one of them probably gets called for a no ball and um, one of them gets hit for a six anyway, and that's game over. It just didn't happen. So it was a remarkable game. So I do think, yeah, you just have to kind of throw those things away. Rumnuff says, can hosting more day-night test uh, cricket in countries where test cricket is on a week standing like West Indies, South Africa, Sri Lanka, bring back more crowds to the stadiums and generate more interest in test cricket? I don't necessarily believe, although it will over time, the day-night test cricket's main skill is bringing crowds back. I think day-night test cricket's main skill is the fact that you're moving it from daytime advertising rates to nighttime advertising rates. That's why I push for day-night tests. I haven't seen that much um, extra crowd numbers as far as I'm aware, and I could be wrong. I'm I'm sure there's a small bump um, in day-night tests. You also have to think about, and this is really interesting, time zones. For instance... In West Indies, if they move all their tests to day-night, it means that no one in England will watch them, no one in Asia will watch them. It's a good time zone for Australia, but they're not going to make much money out of Australia and New Zealand. Um, maybe a good time zone for America. It might be worth them looking at. Um, but at the same time, if, if you know if they're really just going to want to make money from like – if they were playing England, um, I would definitely say that they shouldn't go to day-night matches. Um, but if they're playing other countries, then perhaps that's something that they should look at from time to time. Uh, South Africa, there's not a big Jew problem in South Africa, so uh, I absolutely no problem with them playing day-night games again. I, I, would, I would just to reiterate, if they're playing India or Pakistan, they probably wouldn't want to do it just because of the time zones. Uh, Sri Lanka could do day-night tests against pretty much everyone except for Australia and New Zealand, probably, would be my guess. Um, and that would, I think that's right. I'm trying to get all my time zones right for you, um, um, Ramnath. But, uh, but it, it really is a time zone thing. And it's about getting your local advertisers, but also making sure that you're getting, you know, advertisers from around the world or TV interest from around the world. Um, that's where I really see that. But yes, I think we have a billion dollar idea in day night test matches. I really, it's the most important change to cricket in a long time. And we spent no money investing in the ball. And we haven't really committed to it yet. Um, even Australia, who are the pioneers of it. I mean, I went and watched Shield games in the 90s. Uh, you know, James Sutherland gets a lot of respect for what he's done for day-night test cricket. But, you know, Australia was trying this in 1995 when James Sutherland was still a player, I think, um, or 1996. I can't remember. Dean Jones made a triple 100. I was there. But um, yellow balls or orange balls? They used both. I think Dean Jones's one was with orange balls. Yellow balls. Damn it. Um so yeah, look, it's a it's a billion dollar idea. We should commit to it more, but there are a lot of realities to it. Like you can't always be played in England because 
gets cold sometimes in certain times of the year in different places. There's dew in a lot of different uh, places, which is going to cause problems. You know, there's TV crowds, all those sorts of things need to be taken in. So it's not like we can just flick a switch and make all tests day night. Possibly pink ball is still not good enough. But thank you very much for your question. Christopher says, what's your favorite cricket grounds in the world? An absolute must visit. Uh, I mean, look, I'm in the press, so it's not the same for me as anywhere else. I mean, Edgebaston's great because the food's really good. And Adelaide once, give, once gave me steak and lobster. Uh, and they used to do, um, uh, uh, they, uh, they did a very good breakfast once at, at Christchurch. And the best fish curry I've ever had in my life was at Eden Gardens. Um, so that's how I rate them. Um, uh, I've always been a big Trent Bridge fan. Um, it's one of my favorite grounds uh, in the world. Uh, I, love, um, I love Port Elizabeth, um, another one that I really like. Some of the smaller Sri Lankan grounds, like Pisara. Um, which don't have the best facilities in the world, but I don't know. There's something kind of great uh, about covering cricket there. Obviously, I'm a Melbourne boy, so MCG is uh, a very, very important one for me. Um, Wayne Ketty and the Wanderers, uh, which are you know Wanderers. Uh, Wayne Ketty is based on the Wanderers. Um, is a they're both very interesting grounds to be in. Um, you know, great atmospheres. Um, where else have I been? Oh, Kensington Oval. Uh, I really enjoyed, it's got, you know, its own vibe. I, I really enjoyed Guyana. You know, people don't go there that much because they don't like to, you know, there's not as much tourist stuff in Guyana as some of the other islands. But I think Guyana's, uh, I think it's a great ground and a great crowd. Unfortunately, it's a terrible pitch. <laughs> um, uh, uh, so, yeah, I think that there's quite a few. I think I've known, oh, Malahide, Malahide. I really love Malahide. Um, uh, that's definitely one of my favourites. I, I know Ireland is going to move beyond Malahide. Um and they should because obviously I need to be more professional. But if you ever get a chance to go to Malahide, I would certainly do that. And obviously I'd like to go to the Grange and watch a game in Scotland as well. But that's not going to happen. So thank you. That was to all the Patreon uh, questions. So some really good questions there. And we have a few people lined up in the chat. There seems to be something wrong with the chat. So uh, I'll try and get to everyone, but not everyone's coming through. But yeah, if you want to support us on Patreon, Jared Kimber Patreon, uh, go over there and help us out. I who I could see you. You're the man near the bridge, San Francisco. Hey, Jared. Yes, I was asking about how weird IPL can get that, you know, teams which are near perfect and, you know, near good can suddenly fall down and cannot stop the other despite trying everything they can, like Sunrisers for, for this year, CSK last year, and then CSK with pretty much the same team except Moinali are killing it this time. And I have seen it with Delhi so many times. How, 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 how what, what changes? I mean, do you know if it's nothing changes? Enough? I can tell you exactly what it is. It's actually the simplest thing in the world. In baseball, if you have a bad 20 games, they call it a slump. Right. We don't even have 20 game seasons. The variability between T20 seasons is if you have a look at my, my recent thing talking about sunrises, I looked at 2016, 2017, 2018. I don't care how many titles they want in. I'm, I'm more interested in how many games they won in that period, right? Because that is the absolute most important part of it. Um, and that's what I'm looking for. And that's why Chennai can be – I mean, you look at Mumbai. Mumbai win a title, then come fifth, and win a title, and then come fifth, right? Um, as you said, Chennai is, a, you know, a similar, a similar case um, last year. Um, and, and it's got nothing to do with – who these teams are or, you know, what do you say, mindset? It's just a normal form fluctuation. Your team is going to go like, 
you're up and down and up and down. And we have such short seasons that it seems like, oh, everything's wrong. I think in the Sunrise's case, there are structural problems. But even then, if there wasn't a mega auction coming up, I don't know if I'd be getting them to panic that much because it's a mega auction and everything can change. I think I think they need to move on from their 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 style. But it's only one bad season, and you can say maybe two bad seasons. Maybe the last one, I know they ended up okay, but they, they were a bit more wishy-washy um, as well. But realistically, that's the hardest thing to tell team owners, to tell coaches and everything, which is there's just a natural fluctuation um, uh, in T20 cricket and – there's not a lot you can do to yeah, – uh, who's the who's the team? Of, oh, well, so let's go Sunrises, right? I think Sunrises need to completely start again, right? And keep a couple of players and start again. But what are the odds that David Warner, Kane Williamson, Manish Pandey, and Bhuvi Kumar would all have career-worst seasons at the same time? What's that? 50 to 1? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. you don't get – have a look at the first half of Kolkata. We know that Kolkata batting lineup works. We've seen it now for four games, right? It's there's one player different, and as good as Ayer has been, he's you know all, most of those players were there beforehand. So right. those things happen, and it's re- it's the hardest thing in the world. Like I think this is why Chennai have been so good so much is they don't panic at selection when a bunch of players aren't doing the things that they want. Exactly, and it's so hard to do. So, uh, Janet, on, on lines of that, only what about mm. Punjab and Rajasthan and even KKR post to Gambit? What is with them? Every year they have the same story of, you know, they start well or they, in the end, they have this whole situation of five and five, four and four. Every season they have this whole story. Uh, they change everything. They change players. They do revamp every other season. What's, what do they have to do? I think they probably never had a complete rebuild. They they're very loyal to certain, like the fact that Shakib is still on the, on their roster. I know Shakib was at one stage one of the world's best T Twenty players, but he's not anymore. And I think that probably what they needed to do at one stage or another was was think about how they want want to win going. Think about how they thought they were going to win going forward and build the team around that, rather than going well. We've got Dre Ross and we've got Narain and we've got um, those sorts of players. I feel like they just haven't really thought about that. Um, and then maybe they would have done it over the last couple of years with McCullum and Lehman and, and now Morgan uh, involved in leadership positions. But, you know, the last year and a half has been craziness. So they probably haven't had that chance. Um, it'd be really interesting to see what they do in the mega auction. But um, thanks so much for your question. I will try and get to some other people who are, so, who are around, hopefully. Ben. I'm looking for a, we, we run a, a juniors section at a club about 200 years between kind of 8 and 16. And if, if you could focus on one analytic from a coaching perspective, one that I can improve by focusing on that one aspect of something across the whole board, where would you look? What would you recommend? That's, re- that's a really interesting question. I'd make all the kids bat left-handed or bowl left-armed. I suppose it would probably be, you know, would be the first thing that I would do. If it's one analytic, I almost think that I think everyone is going to grow up to be able to hit boundaries. And I think that that is going to be a natural thing. And so what I would be saying to all the kids is if everyone's trying to hit boundaries, what's going to differentiate you from another kid who can hit boundaries? And I think it's strike rotation. And I think back to when I played, um, and this is way before – you know, we talked about analytics or anything, but the players who were kind of worst the most at the junior level were the ones who 
hit the ball into the gap and rotated the strike. And you can do this through dot ball percentage. And especially especially when you're talking about juniors, when you're talking about people under the age of 14, um, a lot of them won't be natural boundary hitters or won't have that ability to do it. Every single player should be able to learn to be able to open the face and close the face um, and, and, uh, and do that. So you could do that with drills. Um, you know, you know, you have which is hats drills, um, where it's just like, okay, we now need we this ball's going to be bowled down to you, no matter where it's bowled, we need you to hit it to the left of this which is hat or to the right of this which is hat or vice versa. And then you can do it through, you know, I, I do you digitize your scorecards? Is that is that you do it on the apps? Yeah, 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 exactly. yeah, yeah. yeah. I think if you do that, you should be able to look at dot ball percentage, right? I think that. You, if you can teach kids how to do that skill while encouraging them to look for boundaries all the time. So it's, it, it's the way we're taught in Australia, really, which is, um, Kate, Kate was talking about this in the IPL yesterday. You, you start by looking for a boundary. When you can't hit a boundary, you then look for a three or two or a, or a one. Um, and it doesn't seem to be how everyone in world cricket has always been trained. So you say to the kids, look for the boundary, look for the boundary. When the boundary's not there, make sure that you're off strike. I think those are the two things because if you have a if you have a junior cricket team where everyone is scoring consistently, I think what you would teach the kids is smarter cricket. They will understand fields, they will understand bowling to a different level. They won't just be sitting there waiting for the ball to be in their arc. Um, so you'll get smarter cricketers. You'll probably get better captains coming through. You get better leaders, and even your bowlers will be smarter. So I would probably go with dot ball percentage. It's not the sexiest thing, but I think that I think it can improve the way that all your players look at the game. So, yeah, that's where I would go. How have I done? What do you think? That's a great answer, mate. Thank you. No worries. Good luck with it all. Cheers, mate. Googlies, quarter seamer, Karen, Dukes, back of the hand, red, leg cutters, Tisra, pink, knuckle, white, slider, seed, heavy, bounces, cherry, length, pill, off cutters, old, Crimson Traveller, Kookaburra, Hard, Outswing, Second New, Offspin, Arm, SG, Split Finger, Shiny, Leg Spin, Soft, New, Yorkers, Flippers, Wrongens, Long Hops, Reverse Swing, Half Volley, and Third New. These are just some of the names we use for balls in cricket. Well, Manscaped wants you to be as proud of your balls as you are of the ones delivered by your favourite cricketer. Manscaped just launched their fourth generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. Join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer 20% off and free worldwide shipping. Insert the code REDINCA at manscaped.com. I've actually used this, um, not just something that I'm hawking for fun. And I got to admit, I thought it was a bit silly. And then I went down there and it was exceptional. I honestly feel I could bowl outswing with one nut and in swing with the other. So get 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code REDINCA at manscaped.com. Manscaped, for the man who cares about his balls as much as the ones out in the middle. Kyle. Hi, Jared. Hey, mate. Uh, so you've talked a lot about what you've coined the pace pandemic uh, and mentioned some reasons behind it, namely the wobble ball and familiar pitches and maybe a very skilled generation of bowlers. I wanted to ask if this era has seen a change in velocity because in baseball, you know, for the last 10 years, it's gone from 91 miles an hour, 93. Guys hitting 100 has gone up a lot. It's being pretty regular now. A lot of that's based on baseball analytics, but 
you know, humans are getting faster and stronger. Sports training messages are, are always getting better. So is that also part of this, uh, this era of bowling or is that something that's just not happening as much? No, definitely. I think what we probably haven't had is m- we haven't had the top end of our bowlers get quicker. So we haven't had people bowling quicker than Sean Tate, Brett Lee, Shobakta, maybe even Jeff Thompson, if you, if you trust those numbers. Um, I don't think we've had anyone consistently around their speeds. What we have had, though, is I remember Tim Bresden. I don't know when you got on, into cricket, Carl, so you might have missed Tim Bresden, but Tim Bresden played for England in 2010-11. Uh, Tim Bresden could touch 90 miles an hour. Bowlers like Tim Bresden 10 years earlier bowled 80 miles an hour. Um, bowlers like Tim Bresden 40 years earlier probably bowled 75 miles an hour. The the base pace of of bowlers around the world, international bowlers around the world, is just a lot quicker now. Um, you, It's very rare now that you have um, international bowlers who at least can't touch 90 miles an hour, whereas before 90 miles an hour was the magic mark, right? Like if you get the 90, you, you were genuine quick. Whereas now someone like Chris Wokes bowls at 90 miles an hour um, and Trent Bolt bowls at 90 miles an hour, neither of them are considered fast bowlers, realistically. Like, you know, they're not talked about like fast bowlers. Um, they're both talked about as swing bowlers. Uh, and that was another thing. People didn't use to swing the ball at 90 miles an hour, uh, whereas Trent Bolt and, uh, you know, uh, ever since really Alan Donald and Brett Lee um, we've seen that a lot more, that now you can bowl at 90 miles an hour and swing the ball. And then the other thing is that generally if you bowled at 90 miles an hour in that er- earlier era, you were erratic. You couldn't aim the ball where you wanted it to go. So um, if you look at guys like Nancy Haywood, um, Sean Tate, even Sean Actor to a certain degree, although he's probably a bit more accurate than the last two, Getting them to bowl at, no, at no, over 90 miles an hour was not a problem. Getting them to hit a le- line of length over and over again was a big problem. Um, and what you have now is you have someone like Pat Cummins who has the ability to get to 94, 95 miles an hour um, who can also land the ball on, on, on a line of length similar to what someone who bowls at 85 miles an hour used to be able to do. Um, that is huge. And, you know, Boomer is another one. Um, uh that, that, you know, there's a few of them sort of coming through. And, and maybe in some ways Dale Stain was one of the early ones, but even Dale Stain wasn't as accurate as, um, as probably as Boomer and um, Cummins have gone on to be. So I think the base level of, of quickness has gone up massively. Uh, when, when I, there, there's, a, there's a famous footage. I talk about this all the time. It really annoys old cricket people because there, there was a bowling competition. You can find it on YouTube. Fastest bowlers in the world. Put in Jeff Thompson and Michael Holding and it will come up. And it's really interesting. And the science behind the pace wasn't that accurate compared to what, it's not the same system we use now. But we did get paces of our bowlers. And the most interesting thing about it is, I'm going off the top of my head here, Kyle, but I think Jeff Thompson was 13 kilometers quicker than anyone else. Um, and it wasn't peak Jeff Thompson. That was after he injured his shoulder. I also think he turned up to the thing after coming out of a pub. So he probably wasn't in uh, peak physical condition that particular day. What's interesting is he's about 25 or 30 miles an hour from the guys who are uh, ranked 8th to 12th quickest. Now, remember, they put out a call to the quickest bowlers in the world and they've got guys who are 20 to 30 kilometres slower. I think that's right. I think my numbers are right. Then Jeff Thompson in that competition. If you put out the top 12 quickest bowlers in the world now, there'd be, what, five miles an hour between them? Uh, you know, seven, seven, eight kilometres an hour between their top balls? Um 
it's a completely different situation now. We, you know, you ha- whether those speed speed was right or wrong, you ha- definitely had guys in that fastest bowler uh, in the world competition who were bowling around about eighty miles an hour. If you bowl at eighty miles an hour now, <laughs> you are not getting invited to any fastest bowlers of the world competition. That was forty years ago. Um, so my guess is that the base speed has gone up massively, top end speed, not as much. And so someone like Tim Bresden in the end, wasn't even seen as particularly quick bowler. He was seen as, you know, almost like uh, fast, medium, but almost medium fast. He was talked about, you know, some of the ways we talked about his bowling and yet he could touch 90 miles an hour. I think that's how much the game has changed. So I think that I absolutely have no doubt that that is part of the reason that this has happened. All right. Thank you. Basket, did Basket come on first? I feel like he did. Oh, dear. Do you know what? Basca has sent a... So the medium pace has gone up amongst bowlers. He's, he's put that in the chat. Yeah, um, that is true. I, I think that is what has changed, is every everyone is quicker um, across the board. So you don't, get, you don't get the sort of bowlers that we got. If, if you look at 90s into early 2000s, like you'd hear stories of guys like um, Duncan Spencer and uh, Brad Williams... And um, uh, uh, every, every second Pakistani, <laughs> you know, occasionally there'd be someone, uh, well, like Nancy Haywood, but someone else in, in you know, a young um, South African bullet would come through. They were notable because of how much quicker they were than everyone else. And that was always the, 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 the talk. That doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Now what we, what we are seeing is, um, uh, what, what we're seeing at the moment is bowlers who are, genuinely uh, roughly the same pace. And then you get a slight bump up with Joffre and Mark Wood and um, trying to think some of the other 95 mile an hour guys that are, that are out there, you know, Mitchell Stark and, um, and those sorts of guys. That's not a big jump up from, as I said, Chris Wokes, who was not considered fast. And Chris Wokes and Tim Southey are two really interesting ones because they both put on a lot of pace during their career. Again, that isn't something that we we saw that often in previous generations, whereas it now feels like you can put on pace. But yeah, um, Basco, are you there? Oh, yeah, wait. can you hear me? I can hear you. What's your question? Hey, Jared, so my question is, uh, given you were speaking about the women's cricket, so they changed the official name from batsman to batter. So what is the new name for Chinaman bowling? And when will we see the first woman Chinaman? Do we have to wait for the name change? Um, well, we haven't used Chinaman for years, really. Most people, it's very rare that a professional cricket writer will use it um, unless they're over 50 years old because it's a racist term. <laughs> I wrote about it being a racist term in 2007. Um, it was... Uh, it, yeah, it's got this. It's got this. The the story that is linked to it is racist, racist. Even and that story is not even completely true because they were using the term in um, Yorkshire before that. There are articles in Yorkshire publications from late nineteen twenties, early nineteen thirties, saying it's a racist term and it shouldn't be used. Um, yeah, how it became a, a, a term, but no, um, we have had left arm wrist spinners in women's cricket. I just don't think they've made the professional level, but they certainly exist. But yeah, no, um, we shouldn't be using the term. Uh, it was racist for a very long time. You know, who, who have we had? Uh, you know, Richard Chiqui in Australia, Herbert Chang in the West Indies. Um, um, there's been a lot of, and then there's the entire Hong Kong cricket team. 
um, well, sorry, not the entire Hong Kong, but the, the Hong Kong cricket team with with, with Chinese players, uh, Chinese ethnicity. There's been a couple of West Indians. I think there's been, I think there might have been an Australian Sheffield Shield player a long time back with Chinese ethnicity as well. Um, there's no reason for the phrase to exist in cricket. Um, it just got passed down. There's a lot of phrases that we can that we can move on from. Um, and it's a bit of a shame that it's uh, it's probably got so much of a hold. But yeah, it's it's the kind of game that we have, and people want to hold on to these things. But it, they knew it was racist in the era that they invented it, and somehow it managed to stick around for seventy or eighty years. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's a bit of a problem. But as far as women go, it, it, it's an interesting question. So. Less than 1% of deliveries in professional cricket are by left-arm wrist spinners. I think it's about half a percent. So I think it's about one in every 200 balls that is bowled is by a left-arm wrist spinner by men. Uh, If you look at women's cricket, there aren't that many left-handers. There aren't many left-handers who bat and there aren't many left-arm bowlers, whether it be um, especially seam bowling. That was exactly the same at the start of of men's cricket. Um, And... The more players you have, the more left-handers you're going to get. Um, and you know, especially now where, you know, a lot of people don't even believe that we stand on the right side of the bat and all that sort of stuff. And the more women who play, the more left-arm dominant women. But I could tell you this, that ECB have been looking for left-handers for a long time because they know that would be a tactical advantage. Um, I know I talked to um, some uh, coaches uh, of some T20 women's T20 teams and they were on the lookout for left-arm seam bowlers wherever they could find them because they thought, again, that would be a really, really interesting um, thing. So we don't – I think you can bowl left-arm finger spin without being left-arm dominant. It's not easy, but we have seen people do that before. Um, Whereas I think to bowl left-arm wrist spin or to bowl left-arm quick, you have to be left-arm dominant or very – or some form of ambidextrous. So I think that's why we haven't seen as many women because we just don't see as many women left-handers so that's why we haven't seen as many women left arm wrist spinners or women left arm seam bowlers. Make sense? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Jared. And thanks for the education on the rate system. So I too will avoid, maybe it shows my age. <laughs> no, no. I mean, look, it's, we've all used it because it came up through cricket and it just, <coughs> sorry, pardon me. Um, I've just done the research on it. And when you go into it, you just realize that it wasn't, it wasn't even thought of as friendly and nice back when it was started. Um, and uh, there's a, a season two of Double Century. I, I go into the the term, um, and also I go into all the players of Chinese ethnicity that have you know been involved in our game. So uh, it's, re- it's a really really interesting uh, uh, little story. But thanks for that. Adeya, are, th- are you there? Yeah, I get it. I'm you. Hey, hey, excellent. Uh, what's your question, mate? Yeah, so I wanted to know what do you think about the substitute rule? Like Mumbai Indians, as we all know, have been fielding Uncle Roy for the past three years just because he's a good fielder and they've been able to replace a man on the field with him. So what do you think about the tactical side of it? Like teams planning to use him in certain phases of the game? Like twice Punjab can also use Avian Allen. India might carry Manish Pandey, not for his batting, but just for his fielding in some tools. If they just want to hide a person for a period of time and then make a plan on that. So what do you think, like, just because of all of the cricket talk right now against Ashwin and spirit of the game, so what do you think about that? Yeah, I'm not worried about spirit of the game. I think we we make a decision with T20 cricket at a certain point of whether we want it to be the best versus the best 
or if we want it to continue in cricket's tradition where we have players doing things they're not very good at. So by that I mean, do we really want to see uh, Mohamed Shami bat? Would we not rather see 10 you know, professional batters bat uh, with maybe one all-rounder at number 11 rather than, um, than that? Do we really want to see you know, a fifth bowler? Do we really want to see Glenn Maxwell bowl when we could actually have five specialist bowlers of a team of 15. So Americanize the sport at a certain point. And at that stage, would it not be better also to do a similar thing with fielding? You can, if you want to pay to have someone in your squad who's a professional fielder to overcome the athletic um, inabilities of uh, some of your players, do you want to do that? If we don't want to do that, and at the moment we haven't gone completely down that route, although obviously the big bash has flirted with it, then we actually need to um, look after our playing conditions and our laws. And Mumbai have been getting, I mean, lots of teams get away with that. I think Mumbai, just because they keep using the same player, have probably been caught doing it more often. Uh, it's harder to do with Fabian Allen because you can only have four overseas on the field at any one time, can't you? So um, otherwise, I mean, I've been saying for a long time, Fabian Allen's the best fielder in the world, if Hayden Walsh isn't. But I could see why anyone would, would want to use Fabian Allen on the field in that particular situation. Um, the, the, but, yeah, it needs to be policed better, and I don't think it is being policed particularly well. It should be the third official or the fourth official's job. Um, and there probably should be almost like a substitute timer um, probably in in, in top-level T20 cricket now or international cricket as well because some teams have done it there, where you say, okay, this guy's been on the field for 40 minutes now. Um, that seems, you know, he's got a limit of, I don't know, 25 minutes unless there is an actual injury. Uh, and if there is an actual injury, then that player will not be playing in the next game. Maybe we need to get a bit more strict. But it really, I would prefer to have the best fielders on the field, the best batters batting, the best bowlers bowling. But that is taking it a long way away from cricket. And so perhaps people don't uh, want to go in that direction. But I think that that is the way that I, I've looked at it. But yeah, but thanks so much for the question. Thank you, Jack. No worries. All right. Keshav. My question is regarding the IPL auction strategy. Uh, I think it's coming up. Like, if you look at longer format, uh, we have specific rules, right, from uh, number one to seven uh, for bats, uh, batsmen, right? But do you think uh, at T20, there is any uh, specific rules? Like, are you, you need to uh, um, you need to have a bunch of hitters all the way from one to seven. I know well, we have openers at number three. Uh, but uh, how teams strategize uh, get batters from one to seven? How they build up? Uh, 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 that, uh, how they like, specify the roles for the batters from one to seven? Is there any specific roles on that, or uh, uh, they just uh, get a bunch of hitters? Uh, the thing with hitters is there aren't that many of them, and hitters are usually limited. So really, I, I'd say there are far more roles within a T20 side batting order than there is in a Test team. At a certain point, four, five, and six can probably, or, or three, four, five, and six in test cricket probably depends on your experience, where you bat, rather than whether you're, what your skills are. That's not the case in T20. You should be playing specifically where your skills are. So, yeah, so I suppose that's the, the first thing that I would say. I have, I've got a list of how many different roles there are in, in uh, T20 cricket, and it's about 36 roles. Um, it's a phenomenally specialist sport in different ways. And you might have, let's look at someone like uh, Chris Morris. So Chris Morris is basically in the team to bowl at the death and bat at the death. And then you might have someone like 
Sunil Narayan, whose job it is to bat in the power play and, and bowl in the middle overs. And so you might have two openers. One is left-handed and one is right-handed. One is a fast starter, one is a slow starter, one is an anchor, one is a hitter, if, if you want to use that term. So I think there's a, a lot of different things that need to be looked at when you're looking at T20. What you really want is the ability to have as much as possible, probably seven to eight batters in your lineup. I know there's a lot of talk about how number sevens don't face many balls and number eights don't face many balls. But the big difference is what it does to your top order when they know there's someone at seven and eight who can bat. That's where the difference is having worked with teams. Um, and But what you really need is a flexibility of you need someone who can smash off spin and, you know, left arm wrist spin, whatever. You need someone who can smash left arm finger spin and uh, uh, leg spin. Uh, you need someone who can smash left arm seam and right arm seam. You need someone who can, you know, uh, specialize in all those different things. You need someone who could start quick and you need someone who could start slow. Uh, there's way more than just what number you bat, uh, what position you can come in, how you can float. Um, uh, yeah, I know, I know there's a lot of people who think, um, uh, so we, we basically, what should happen, and this you could argue this in test matches at a certain point as well. Um, if you, I always said, if England were none for 200 in a test match, I don't want Jonathan Trott coming in. I want KP coming in. Um, and I think that there's, that's a similar thing when you look at kind of T20 cricket. There are all these different players. You, you're looking at sometimes matchups, how they match up against the team, but also the situation of the game. All those things um, uh, have to be factored in. I don't know how many of them are, or how much is being factored in at the moment, if we're being completely honest. Uh, so it's um, yeah, and it's hard because we're still learning the game. We don't know exactly what T20 cricket is realistically. We're learning it as we go. And so it is a little bit tricky. But thank you very much for your question. Uh, especially in the auction, do you think uh, they take all these factors, they put all these factors in and uh, they, they build the team? At the moment, no. I don't think they do that. I don't think they have depth charts properly. I don't, I don't think they use my calculations of how many different kinds of players there are. I, I think that they're better than they used to be and some teams are really good at this. But you need to know, I've said this to teams, even when they've contacted me about working, you need to know exactly what you need, right? And so it, they usually get better towards the end of the auction cycle. Like, oh, well, we have a hole in our game. We'll go out and we'll pay a lot of money to fix that hole. That's what you should be thinking all the way through. So as you're doing the auction, there should be someone there going, okay, this is the team as it is currently structured. What do we need to match these players? And I don't think that's what teams are doing at the moment. Uh, if you could just remove yourself, because I, uh, I can't, I can't get rid of you. Sadly, um, Abaska says, "Oh, thank you." Abaska says, "With the controversy, Ashwin Morgan on running on the overthrow deflection, do England and Australia perceive spirit of cricket different from Asian teams?" Well, people, they, you perceive it differently than I perceive it, and uh, everyone perceives it differently. It's um, it's it's how we are all brought up, and your dad says one thing, and my dad says something else, and. My dad's from my, you know, I mean, Australians look at uh, walking differently to everyone else, right? I think that's more than obvious. I think um, I remember the first time I was in a cricket game and everyone started clapping the captain as he came in. I'm like, what the hell is this? Is this a thing? In fact, I've played in games where people clap every batter when he comes into bat. What? Where did that come from? 
So there is this is the problem with a moral code like the spirit of cricket is your moral code will be different to his moral code. You grow up on one corner, someone grows up on another corner, and they can feel completely different. It'd be really interesting. I remember Mike Atherton doing what, what Ashwin did in a test match once against Australia. And so it is clearly something that happens, at, you know, it's not it's not like no Western players have ever done it before. I've, um, I've seen other players do it in T20 cricket. I know players who I played with who always would say, well, if they threw the ball in and it hit me, that's their fault for doing a bad throw. It's not my fault for running, so I'm going to take the run. I came from a family where my uncle was famous for once uh, – the ball came in from the into the field and it didn't go to the wicketkeeper and uh, like the point fielder took it and then it was passed around the field and as they threw it to the bowler, they threw it over his head and my uncle ran and he was right. It's not a dead ball and he knew the laws and he was correct and I think he was I think he was batting with like number nine or ten and he was trying to get his first ever hundred and so he was looking for every single run and uh, trying to get on strike for the next over. Um, you know, there are many people within cricket that would have massive problems with that even though it's a legal thing to do. Um, but that's the problem with the nonsense about the spirit of cricket. It's always been nonsense. It will always remain nonsense. I remember Rob Smythe was given a book deal to write about the spirit of cricket and he contacted me about it and I basically just went, I, you know, I gave I, I gave it both barrels and said it's the most bullshit thing that's ever happened to cricket, really, um, uh, because no one can actually agree on what it is and no one will ever be able to agree on what it is. Um, and it's used when you don't like what someone else has done, basically. So... Uh, thank you for your question. F- uh, great that we finally got it out of you. Uh, thank you to everyone who turned up to Spotify Green Room. If you follow me on Spotify Green Room, I'm just Jared Kimber, I think. I think I'm just Jared Kimber. You should be able to get alerts. Usually the room works a lot better than that. We do advertise the Green Rooms on Twitter and on Instagram. So if you want to follow me there, there's usually alerts. We put a timer up on Instagram that you can do something. Uh, but if not, Obviously, uh, this is going to be available on Red Inca um, if you came in halfway through the chat or it's going to be available on YouTube. Thanks again to Manscaped if you want to look after your balls. And what man on this podcast doesn't want to look after his balls? I don't know if there's any women because I can't see anyone in the room. But if there is a woman there, she might also want to you know, help out the men in her life with their balls. Uh, Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0. I felt like the guy who polishes the ball in reverse swing, you know, who gets the special job. So manscapes.com. If you want 20% off, put in Ren Inca, all one word, and free worldwide shipping. So thank you to everyone for coming into the chat today. And thank you to everyone on Patreon for helping out there as well. And hopefully we'll be back next week with a less glitchy Spotify green room. Thanks for joining Wagon Wheel. Sports Social Podcast Network.